Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? Is NYU a scientist? They, I felt, felt right. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week's episode is in honor of World Autism Awareness Day, which is on April 2nd. It's all about furthering people's understanding and acceptance of autistic people. So today, both our storytellers are sharing stories about their experience with the autism spectrum. Our first story is from B. Blair Braden. Her story was shared pre-pandemic at a sponsored show for Spectrum News at Centre Fille in Montreal, Canada. It was such an honor producing this show along with Ari Daniel and getting to travel to Montreal to host it back in the before times was an absolute dream. Although I did forget my hairbrush on that trip and it took me a solid hour to get all the tangles out when I got home. Anyway, here's Blair's story. This guy again, here I am in the sweltering heat, just trying to carry my groceries from the car into my girlfriend Candace's house in one load. September may be the time that the rest of the country is cooling off, but for us in Phoenix, the heat is still oppressive. And what's distracting me from my serious grocery carrying mission is Candace's annoying neighbor, Peter. Hey there, he says as he starts marching over to the driveway to talk to us. We didn't ask him to come over, but this is what Peter always did. It was like he sat in his window, waiting, watching for our car to pull in the driveway so he could come chat. Candace was always very nice with him, but I was suspicious of Peter's motives. He was a single, middle-aged man who I thought just wanted to be real chummy with his 20-something female neighbors. I saw right through this misogynistic attempt to, to surround himself with pretty young girls, and I wasn't having it. I was tight-lipped, I was brow-furrowed, and I gave him all the nonverbal cues I had that I did not want to talk with him. And around this time, I was a new postdoc, so I was trying to walk that line between kind of still being a college student, but also wanting to be a real adult. We had moved out of the college student neighborhoods, which was nice to leave the keg parties behind, into adult neighborhoods that brought a whole new challenge, creepy middle-aged neighbors. 
And Peter was just the worst. He knew so much about our lives. He always knew when we had had a party. He always knew who had visited us recently. He even knew that Candace's roommate had broken up with the guy she'd been seeing recently. How did he know all of this stuff? We joke that he had wiretapped the house. It was a joke, but it kind of contributed to my uneasy feelings. So you can imagine my shock when Candace told me she had invited Peter to Thanksgiving dinner. What? Thanksgiving was such a special day for us. It was when all of our former graduate student friends got together because we were still all too poor to travel home to our actual families. We rarely invited outsiders, let alone creepy neighbors. Fine, I said, but I'm keeping my eye on him. So Thanksgiving Day rolls around and he shows up, pie in hand, annoyingly large grin on face, came in just as he did many times to us in the driveway and asserted himself into conversation after conversation. I mean, I guess in this case, what else was he supposed to do? He didn't really know anyone else. But as I watched him, honestly, there wasn't much to see. He was really nice. He was really polite. He was very respectful. But I did notice something interesting. No matter what the conversation was, he always brought it back to the sporting events he attended. Story after story after story of the Phoenix Suns, our football team, the Arizona Cardinals. We even have an ice hockey team in the desert the Arizona Coyotes. He told stories about all of them. And our friends would humor his stories for a bit and then slowly drift into other conversations. But eventually it was time to eat. We all sat in an outstretched table, about 15 former graduate students and the odd man out, Peter. We had a great meal. We ate, we drank, we laughed. Just like every Thanksgiving, it was a lovely time to reflect our good fortune. Not long after dinner, Peter thanked us profusely for having him. He said he typically has nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. Ugh. A sinking feeling set in. I think it was some pumpkin pie rumbling with some guilt, and it all came together at once. The social awkwardness, the lack of meaningful relationships, the insistence of talking about sporting events, Oh my God, I think Peter may be on the spectrum, I said to Candace later that night. This irony was all too much because what I was doing in my new postdoc was a study with middle-aged autistic men. <laughs> and I was loving my new work. I got to take each participant out to lunch in between the MRI scan and the cognitive assessment and just a time to get to know them better. Because I was totally aware of the social communication differences, I was very patient. For example, I had recently gone out to lunch with Greg, and he talked for longer than I wanted him to talk. I wanted to turn to talk, but I was patient and understanding. Sometimes he was louder than I felt comfortable with in the restaurant we were sitting in, but it was okay. Even through those differences, we found this very genuine camaraderie about how it's hard to grow up in small town Southern America. And then lighter topics about what do you say, soda or pop? It's a divisive question. 
So in this different scenario with Peter, I had completely missed the signs. I was embarrassed that I didn't see the connection to the men that I was getting to know through my research, and also just shameful that I could have treated someone so poorly merely because he didn't meet my expectations of that social situation. So ultimately, I had to practice giving myself grace. I was talking with Candace, trying to figure all this out, and realized I was scared. Something about Peter had scared me. I and many other young women I know have been treated poorly by middle-aged men, and being queer has absolutely intensified that mistreatment at times. So we talked about our shared strategy of putting on social armor. When you meet someone that you're not really sure what their intentions are, you put a block up, you protect yourself. And I realized that Thanksgiving night how quick I was to do that when I met Peter rather than actually paying attention to how he treated me. In reflecting on all of my lunches with the autistic men I was getting to know, I felt totally safe and comfortable. And I thought, I bet Peter's a great guy too. So from that day on, I met Peter with smiles and eye contact and lots of questions to get to know him better. What a great guy I'd been missing out on. When he came over to our driveway then, we could chat and laugh, and I could hear about his really cool sporting events that he went to. <laughs> he would help us carry the groceries in from the car. <laughs> so eventually, Candace moved out of that house and in with me to downtown Phoenix. Um, but a couple years later, we visited our old college town, Tempe. We went to the local Oktoberfest, grabbed a beer and a bratwurst, but quickly diverted away from the crowds to a nice bench overlooking the lake. And what do you know, someone else found refuge in that bench. It was Peter. We were so happy to see each other. He was as kind as ever, and I was able to mirror that kindness back to him along with Candace. We caught up over our German delights and eventually said our goodbyes. I was sad as I walked away from Peter that day because I didn't know when I would see him again. Turns out, Peter, Greg, and every autistic person I've ever met has taught me so much about how to let go of fear and embrace acceptance. Thank you. That was B. Blair Braden. Blair received her doctorate in behavioral neuroscience psychology from Arizona State University. She completed her neuroimaging slash neuropsychology postdoctoral fellowship at Burrow Neurological Institute, St. Joseph's Hospital in Phoenix. She's an assistant professor of speech and hearing science and director of the Autism and Brain Aging Laboratory at ASU. All right, so before we continue with today's episode, a few reminders. One, don't judge a book by its cover, or more specifically, don't judge your neighbor by their behavior, unless they're a serial killer, uh, in which case, maybe move? Anyway, as the weather warms up, we'll be hosting a bunch of outdoor shows in cities like New York, DC, St. Louis, Vancouver, and Toronto, and we'll be returning to our regular stages in places like New York and Chicago. There's really nothing like seeing stories told live on stage, and we'd love to see you all there, so find out more at storycollider.org shows. 
We also have an online story slam coming up on April 8th on the theme Rebirth. So put your name in the virtual hat for a chance to be invited on screen to share your story or, you know, just hang out with us and listen to the incredible stories. And don't forget that our big annual fundraiser, the Proton Prom, is coming up in Brooklyn on June 1st. Tickets will go on sale today, April 1st. No, this is not an April Fool's joke. Early bird tickets are on sale now, so run, don't walk to get yours. We're planning on having an amazing party, and we'd love to see you there. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. So you can find out more about that at storyclider.org workshops. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. In fact, this month, if you become a Patreon supporter, you can get a discounted ticket to the Proton Prom. Oh, and we also have merch on our website. If you'd like to buy a Story Collider hoodie, t-shirt, or tote bag, you can find those at storycollider.org store. Your purchases go to help support Story Collider's work. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. All right. Our second story comes from Susan Rapley. It was also recorded in pre-pandemic times at Fringe Bar in New Zealand. The theme that night was crossing over. Strange but true fact about me... My first word was why. Um, Most kids, neurodevelopmentally speaking, hold off until they're about two or three on the incessant questions. Um, And clearly I was not most kids because I got there around my first birthday. I can only imagine what a great joy it must have been for my parents to have me both learning to walk and questioning everything. I truly believe that our first words can tell us a great deal about ourselves. From the brain's perspective, they create the center of the neural networks that will propagate as our brain grows and develops. From my first why, my curiosity only grew as I did. By the age of three, I was enamored with biology, first animal and then human. 
when we get to the age of five, we start school. And with school, we're exposed to the start of social relationships. And this is where my whys started becoming self-exploratory and would eventually lead me to psychology. The first I remember experiencing isolation from a social relationship, I was maybe six. I had one friend, and I remember standing in the playground one day looking for her, unable to find her, until suddenly she came running at me from one of the classrooms down the other end and stopped clear in front of me and said, I don't want to play with you anymore. You're too weird. None of my other friends want you to play with us either. They think you're too weird too, and then just took off back in the other direction. I was just standing there shocked, confused, and remember thinking, but we play together every day, so what am I supposed to do now? That was only the first time something like that happened, and each time the same questions started occurring. Why don't other kids like me? Why do they run away from me? Did I do something wrong? And will I ever have other friends to run away to? What do they mean by calling me weird? And for that matter, aren't I perfectly normal? The short answer to that one, folks, is no, I was not and am not still perfectly normal. Some of these not-so-normal things became really challenging when I was about eight. I tested well, but couldn't perform in the classroom, especially if I was called on to speak up or had to think of an answer to a question really quickly. I was sent for a whole bunch of assessments, and the verdict was, oh, it's not a problem, she's just bright. Like, Mensa bright. We've got this issue, though, with her reading comprehension being way ahead of her verbal comprehension. The solution was to have me reading more challenging books and put me in a bunch of extracurricular activities, hoping that I'd make some friends there as well. And that worked for a little while. Then I got to high school. And at high school, too talented and too bright is not really good. Social expectations change on a daily basis, and one week someone's bullying you mercilessly, and then they want your help with history so they're your best friend. Continuing on to university, I thought I'd finally crack the conundrums, maybe find somewhere I fit in, or a group that I could belong to instead of just being tolerated. If you've been to university, though, you know it's basically just high school on repeat with alcohol. At the end of university, I came out with a degree in psychology and went on to specialize in human development and neuroscience. Doing my PhD almost killed me, literally. For the final 18 months, I kept making myself promises that if I just survived, got through it and finished it, I'd finally find the time to get some help and find out what was wrong with me. Because at some point, you have to accept that it all comes back to me. And a mismatch between what people thought of me from the outside and what I thought I was like from the inside. This kind of treatment of me reached its peak during my PhD. I assumed I was going out into the world trying to be kind and decent and polite, 
And flawed, yes, but not an awful human being. Unfortunately, the feedback I got from pretty much everyone else reinforced that I was, in fact, an awful human being. So the question became, why am I wrong about myself? Why can't I fit in anywhere? And for that matter, why am I such a paradox? Like, why can I teach myself advanced statistics, but I can't manage to shower consistently or remember to brush my teeth and put on deodorant every morning? Why am I so obsessed with being organized, but I lose something on a daily basis? Previous examples include school uniforms, chocolate, and a favorite book. This I am still cut up about at 34 years old, and it happened when I was seven. <laughs> Luckily, I have the proper education to tell me exactly what I need in order to answer these questions a clinical psychologist. Sort of, kind of luckily, my recent extreme psychological distress also qualifies me to see one. Hooray. <laughs> it's not what I expected. For the first two hour session, we just talk, like chit chat, small talk, and it is horrendous, I hate it. I know from my training that this is called rapport building, and the therapist is trying to get to know me as a person so that they can exclude any of my personality traits from a diagnostic criteria. By the end of the first session, I can't follow the conversation. I'm lost in my own head, and so I just tap into my other training in active listening or what I know active listening is supposed to look like from the outside. <laughs> it means I'm pretending. By the end of six sessions, I have the answer. And I tell the psychologist as much, which doesn't go down well. <laughs> she tells me that thing I've heard before so many times, that I'm wrong about me. She suggests I go and read a book. I will find by reading said book that my diagnosis that I've given myself doesn't match with the experience of others. So I go and read a book. Actually, I download 13 book samples on my Kindle, read all of them before choosing one that I really like, read that straight through, pausing only to eat dinner and then have a somewhat decent night's sleep before a job interview the next day. I finish the book in the car on the way to the job interview. And at that point, I know. I know. But I'm a scientist. And I can't just know these things. I need observations and data. So I step outside of myself and I watch. I am so awkward. I am dressed completely inappropriately for this job interview. It is for a short-term lab technician position, which to most people would suggest smart casual. I've come in in business formal wear, which to be fair to me is what the internet suggested. And the lesson here is that you shouldn't trust everything you read on the internet. <clears throat> 
I know I'm supposed to try and chat to the people at the job about what? I don't know. This is the problem. I can't think of what to talk to them about. And I'm so anxious that I can't stop moving. I'm fidgeting and my leg is just going like a dog scratching itself. <laughs> the interviewers come out and we shake hands. And typically you're supposed to make eye contact when you shake hands, but I contact somewhere around the tip of their noses. There's two of them, and I've never been interviewed by two people before, and we go into the room, and I'm just thinking to myself, how should I sit? What sort of body language would convey a sense of relaxed confidence? <laughs> For that matter, there's two of them. Where do I put this expertly faked eye contact? That's when I know. 100% certainty, no further observations necessary. And in that moment, everything changes. And yet, everything is exactly the same as it's always been. Only I've closed a loop, and I finally have language available. I leave the interview knowing that I've completely tanked it, um, but somehow also feeling completely elated. We get in the car to drive home, and I turn to my partner and just announce, well, I'm autistic. And he turns to me and says, how do you feel about that? And for the first time in my life, I can finally say that I feel amazing. That was Susan Rapley. Susan has a PhD in psychological neuroscience, but then applied it to community science education and engagement. Susan is currently advising in the establishment of New Zealand's new Ministry of Disabled People. The Story Collider is so grateful to Blair and Susan for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, education director Nissa Greenberg, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to The Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, operations manager Lindsay Cooper, and marketing manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Ari Daniel and me, Misha Gajewski, and by Caridwen Roberts and Daisha Herbolic, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, Aaron Barker will be back hosting. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.